Welcome to today's edition of the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm your host, Lori Boyer. In addition to feature reports, I'll bring you a look at regional and national agricultural news. And the show starts right after this. We're waking up to a new dawn in agriculture. A better way, where farmers stop working the soil and start working with it. At Huma, our carbon-rich, humate-based products improve soil health and fertility, deliver nutrients more efficiently, and reduce crop input costs. Welcome to Humix Solutions with a human touch. Visit Huma.us to learn more. Organic citrus fruit in California might see a slightly later start to its season. For Creekside Organics, which partnered with Capay Organic in January of 2021, it's in the midst of converting more than 100 acres of land from conventional land to organic land in Porterville, along with the land Capay Organic is farming on in Yolo County. This year, they will have organic mandarins, a bit of conventional Meyer lemons, and conventional caracaras, as well as conventional blood oranges as they are transitioning that land, according to Ashley Berlinger, business development manager and sales representative for Creekside Organics Incorporated. Those items are all part of Creekside's bigger organic citrus lineup that should be complete by 2025 and will include organic caracaras, organic blood oranges, organic lemons, organic navel oranges, organic Meyer lemons, organic mandarins, and organic finger limes. They're growing their program and consolidating it to be a one-stop shop where they're also getting their fair trade certification. The late start comes due to the heat and awaiting cooler nights. They'll be one of the first to market their organic satsumas because they're further north in Yolo County, according to Berlinger. Noting the season should start in mid-November. Lips and lemons will also begin around that time. Meyer lemons will start in mid-January, and then conventional caracaras and blood oranges will start in late January, early February. However, the supply of mandarins, navels, and lemons will be down across the industry thanks to thrip damage. They will still see a competitive market, though, with much of the land transitioning in the last five years, according to Berlinger. In addition to less fruit, fancy-grade fruit will have more limited availability with more choice grade fruit expected. There's going to be a lot of demand for bagged navel, bagged lemons, and bagged caracaras to move volume. This way, they're getting good returns to growers and not leaving anything in the orchards. Meeting at lower supply will be strong demand, which should exceed supply. Everyone's hearing that yields are going to be down, according to Berlinger. The holiday season is also when people are thinking about vitamin C and health, and in January, there's a resolution push. Meanwhile, holiday cocktails should help push food service demand for lemons and limes. Consumption of specialty citrus also does seem to be growing. There's demand for more variety. Sweetness is at the forefront, but the acid to bricks ratio is important too. So it's having that crisp bite with a fruit that doesn't taste like sugar water, according to Berlinger, adding that marketing efforts around Caracara, for example, as a pink orange and branding citrus is also helping get consumers excited about the category. As for pricing, it's expected to be strong on fancy grade fruit and overall strong FOBs are expected for the season. There will be a lot of choice navels, lemons, Myers, and caracaras in the industry, and there will be more flexibility on that fruit for sure, according to Berlinger. Green bell pepper production started in Coachella. The fields look really good right now, and it would be difficult to know that a tropical storm rolled through in late August, according to Garrett Powell of Peter Rabbit Farms. He says they're seeing larger fruit than normal for the fall, more like jumbo in extra large sizes. Usually on the crown pick, there's limited choice, and that's still consistent with what's happening. They're getting mainly number one peppers. The season is starting slightly later, thanks to the unique combination of cooler temperatures than normal, but at the same time, warmer temperatures are staying on longer. 
longer. Typically, that transition from the north to the south would have been last week, so there's some overlap from the different supplying districts in California. However, supply is expected to even out once a transition has been completed. On demand, it seems a little lackluster, but he thinks with the new month coming up and the Thanksgiving poll, that will change. He expects demand to get better while supplies move to the southern growing districts, according to Powell. As for red pepper production, it's expected to start in the second week of November. Green pepper production should stay in Coachella until the first half of December, while red peppers have the chance to go into January. The supply and quality are strong out of Coachella, and they expect it to stay that way for the next four to six weeks, according to Powell. Meanwhile, in pricing, it's moderate and will likely strengthen towards the end of November. Unpredictable weather has affected the produce industry harder this year than last year. Cost of inputs, commodity pricing volatility, and weather unpredictability limit the fresh produce sector as a vital industry for feeding a growing global population sustainably, according to a produce pay survey that explored business stability for produce stakeholders in the United States and Latin America. Highlights from the survey include commodity pricing volatility, business stability, business impact, worsening challenges, concerns about the future, and produce waste. When it comes to produce waste, about 60% of respondents estimate that greater than 10% of their produce is wasted, degraded, or damaged due to supply chain inefficiencies. One example of unpredictable weather was the effect that it had in California regarding the table grapes industry. When Hurricane Hillary damaged nearly 25 million boxes of California table grapes, companies took proactive steps to find solutions and bridge supply gaps by looking for supplies elsewhere. Countries like Peru and Chile were able to fill the gaps left by Hurricane Hillary. Mexico crossings of asparagus 2023 cropped through Arizona, California, and Texas are expected to remain about the same. Fusarium is a fungus that's been prone to infect lettuce, predominantly iceberg, in several parts of the world. In Arizona, the disease has been around since 2001. While it was first contained in one field, it has since then spread through the lettuce production areas of the southwestern U.S. The problem is it spreads very easily through people and machinery. Even cleaning machinery has not stopped the spread. Once a plant has been infected, Fusarium gets into the root system, preventing the plant from taking up nutrients or water and causing it to die, according to Davy Brooks, with gringo seed in Yuma. Arizona. Since the plants are affected from underground, it's hard to discover infected plants at first. Droopy leaves are the first sign, followed by the plant drying out and turning brown. Once a field is infected, the only way to turn things around is to fumigate it by applying chemicals, according to Brooks. However, most chemicals are no longer allowed to be used, and this solution is only effective for about two years. After that, the fusarium will start popping up again. In addition to Yuma, which supplies 90% of the lettuce grown in the U.S. in winter, the Salinas region in California also witnesses some problems with Fusarium. Although it is more widespread in Yuma, it is becoming an issue in Salinas as well, according to Brooks. Furthermore, the same strain of Fusarium, FOL1, is affecting lettuce production in Spain, an important lettuce supplier for Europe in the winter. In the past five years, Gringo Seed has worked on the development of fusarium-resistant varieties, and it's the second year they have been planted commercially. Since then, the impact of fusarium has decreased. They've started developing four iceberg lettuce varieties that are fusarium-resistant, including Adrian, Balboa, Mickey, and Polly, according to Brooks. While the performance of these varieties is okay, many growers are still trying to use the old varieties that they are used to. The main reason is the new varieties aren't as adaptable as the old ones, he said. They aren't as bolt-tolerant or sure heading, and the shape isn't as pretty. Ringo Seed will also be sending over fusarium-resistant seeds to Spain this winter. 
In addition, Gringo Seed is working on developing new varieties that better align with the varieties that growers are used to. The company is working on 40 new lines that better resemble the old varieties and will have better bolting tolerance and more sure heading, as well as offering higher yields and growing a larger size. Within a year, they should be able to have a few fusarium-resistant varieties for iceberg lettuce and romaine lettuce out there and have the characteristics of the old varieties, according to Brooks. We thought about all these massive pieces of industrial technology from the 50s and we thought how can we reduce that footprint and miniaturize these tools uh, to make the most sense for our growers so we see this as an opportunity to not only you know proliferate sterilentic technique but also like on a very random and totally different side of things improve nuclear security by removing these gamma sources from you know places that maybe we don't want to see them in or just ideally throughout the whole planet Nathan Moses Gonzalez, CEO of M3 Agriculture Technologies, talking about the company's grant funding to transition use of sterile insect technique in the agriculture industry from gamma radiation to a safer x-ray method. With sterile insect technique, pests like navel orangeworm and coddling moth are reared in a facility where gamma radiation is applied to essentially break down their DNA and render them unable to reproduce. The sterile insects are then released into orchards as part of an IPM program, reducing numbers of reproducing generations per season as well as reliance on pesticides. Sterile insect technique has been around literally since World War II. And at the conclusion of World War II, there was um, all of a sudden nuclear energy had come out of nowhere. And uh, there was also all these aircraft that the federal government had and large air bases that were scattered throughout the country uh, to support you know, the military uh, but as the military ramped down, uh, the USDA was looking at other programs they could ramp up to sort of fill those voids. And one of them was this uh, screwworm eradication program. So they built a this program at an airbase in South uh, Texas. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, that randomly enough, gave the opening remarks at this uh, facility. And basically, they used uh, gamma radiation. This is sort of like a time when there was like a huge push for atoms for peace. Um and they use these big footprint facilities and aircraft to release them. And they ran with that system from the 1950s all the way up until today. And so, you know, you can see the USDA using this legacy approach even today. Um, what we do and how we enter the equation is we've thought about all these massive pieces of industrial technology from the 50s. And we thought, how can we reduce that footprint and miniaturize these tools uh, to make the most sense for our growers? So we've gone from large facilities that are, you know, on the orders of tens of thousands of feet down to modules that are, you know, on the orders of a couple hundred feet. Uh, we've gone from using gamma irradiators uh, like cold, that rely on cobalt 60 and cesium 137 uh, down to the x-ray machines, which is what we have funding for today. And we can talk a little bit about that more further. And then our sort of like first improvement that we made on this sort of technology was going from these fixed wing aircraft like a Cessna uh, 172 or a Cessna 2, 210, I believe, um, down to using these drones that we have. Um, so. We kind of looked at taking all of the technology that was created in the 50s and thought, how can we bring it up to, you know, 2020, 2023 and see what we could do. And so that's kind of how we've got to this point with this technology. And then, you know, specifically looking at like the difference between gamma radiation and x-rays, um, they are both imparting or radiation into the insects. So the insects themselves are not radioactive, but they're bombarded by these beams that go through them. And it basically destroys their DNA to the points where they're no longer able to produce offspring. So 
we fine tune those value, those variables based on things like performance and other any number of entomological issues that we may consider. Uh, but the primary goal is to make sure that when we release these sterilized moths, that they are just as competitive, if not slightly more competitive than the wild population. What Moses Gonzalez and M3 are looking to find out is twofold, whether x-rays can sterilize navel orange worm and coddling moth in a short enough period of time to be economical, and whether the technology can be precise enough as gamma. Additionally, improvement of sterile insect technique by moving away from gamma radiation is more environmentally friendly and opens up more opportunities for use in other regions with limited resources. One of the major things that the U.S. Department of Energy looks at is, and uh, by extension, Sandia National Laboratories as well, is how can we continue to advance nuclear technology without relying upon things like uh, gamma and cesium? And so what you see is like these sort of technologies are not only used like for our discrete purpose within sterilensic technique, but also for things like blood irradiation. So, you know, if you're going to go donate blood, it's going to be processed through these machines and these machines will sterilize the blood so you can give a transfusion to somebody else. Um, so these are machines that are fairly ubiquitous throughout the planet. Um, but one of the things that the Department of Energy is really interested in is actually uh, reducing the nuclear footprint in terms of the amount of like radioactive sources that are gamma radiation. Uh, and instead, replace them with these things that are much, much more contained. Um, you know, one of the hard things about using radiate, like uh, cobalt-60, for example, is whether you want the thing to be radioactive and producing energy or not, it's just going to be pumping out tons of energy. Uh, and so, you know, the pro there is that it's really cheap to provide sterility. The consequence is that you have to be really, really careful around those machines. Um, we're replacing those type of machines with these uh, x-ray machines that are self-contained, uh, they're much safer to operate. Uh, you know, if anything goes wrong, we can literally just pull the power plug on it. Um, and then you're not going to be producing any more energy from it. And so from a perspective of nuclear security, it actually removes these sort of uh, these sort of objects that could be used nefariously if you're not careful with them. And in regions of the planet where, you know, maybe we're a little bit more concerned about security around these sort of sources, uh, replacing them is not only a win for the environment and the teams that work on these tools, but also it's a win for nuclear security as well, which is, is a sort of like another big piece of this equation. And so a major limiting factor within sterilized technique has been you have to go to places where you feel pretty comfortable that you can have a, um, you know, a radioactive source out there, like, a, you know, a, a gamma irradiator. Uh, bringing in x-ray machines, well, that's a much lighter piece of technology, much easier to use. Uh, the consequences of it getting into the wrong hands are not as big as you would expect the gamma radiation to be. Um, so we see this as an opportunity to not only, you know, proliferate sterilentic technique, but also like on a very random and totally different side of things, improve nuclear security by removing these gamma sources from, you know, places that maybe we don't want to see them in or just ideally throughout the whole planet. So I think that's kind of one of the major goals that uh, we share with Sandia is that we want to see uh, sterilentic technique proliferate. We think that it's going to be a boon to any number of regions around the planet. And then also, you know, we want to help participate and removing gamma sources from any number of systems uh, to improve the viability of them for, for all mankind. So it is a pretty exciting opportunity. And, um, you know, just given our footprint with Sandia, as well as through United Nations, um, we think that these tools can really be deployed any place throughout the planet that has issues with the economic pests that we deal with. You're listening to My Ag Life. I'm Taylor Tolstrom. Agroplante is the leading manufacturer in specialty products. 
Aquaplante formulates products that rise to the challenge of today's growing conditions. Saline and sodic soils reduce crop yield and cause significant crop losses. Aquaplante developed Cation EX5 Plus with growers in mind to manage soil salinity. With multiple years of research, Cation EX5 Plus has proven to be an excellent source of calcium and an effective soil salinity manager. Run it through drip irrigation without any issues. Simplify your application method with innovative and efficient formulations. Alleviate salinity stress with Cat Ion EX5 Plus. Agroplante. Imagination, innovation, science in action. Salt Lake City, Utah will be the backdrop for the 105th American Farm Bureau Federation Annual Trade Show and Convention, which runs January 19th through the 24th, 2024. Nikki Jones, AFBF Director of Events Marketing, has the details. This year, our theme is New Frontiers, and at the event, we'll offer attendees unique insights on policies and perspectives that will affect farms, ranches, and agribusinesses in 2024. We have 20 workshops that are exclusive to attendees that come in person to Salt Lake City. The workshops cover topics related to public policy, rural development, member engagement, and consumer engagement. Additionally, the convention will feature general sessions, keynote presentations, and discussions that span a variety of topics, including the farm bill, social media, farm sustainability, livestock, crop markets, and more. To conclude the event, there will be farm tours providing a first-hand look at Utah's diverse agricultural production. Attendees can see everything from a pasta plant to a salt mine, you know, an animal science farm to an onion facility or a shrimp cooperative even. With an anticipated attendance of over 6,000 people, the convention is open to both members and non-members. For a detailed look at the full schedule, keynote speakers, tours, and more, visit annualconvention.fb.org. What will be the predominant weather pattern for the country this winter? Per the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's outlook, USA Ag News reporter Rod Bain has more information. What is the outlook for our nation's weather conditions for the winter of 2023-24? USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's forecast for winter weather indicates that The big story for the United States for the winter of 2023-24 is that we are looking at El Nino being in place for the first time in five years. What that means for practical weather for the U.S. in the winter Months is typically during El Nino, we see a weakening of the northern jet stream, the polar jet stream, and a strengthening of the southern or subtropical jet stream. So temperatures should be mild and warm for most of the country, particularly along the northern tier. Meanwhile, precipitation should be more predominant in the southern half of the U.S. during the upcoming winter months. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. USA Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack has apparently sold President Joe Biden on his whiteboard speech about diversifying farm income and a rural economy. The White House will start making a push to barnstorm across rural America with a series of events that began yesterday when the president visited a farm in Minnesota. The White House has explained that the president and several cabinet members will barnstorm across the country to highlight how Bidenomics and the president's investing in America's agenda are ensuring that rural Americans do not have to leave their hometown to find opportunity. The effort appears as an attempt to counter the fact that rural Americans are increasingly voting for Republicans in recent elections and criticism from conservative media outlets over issues such as inflation. 
Instead, the White House wants to highlight the increase in infrastructure and rural energy investments that have happened under Biden's presidency. The president, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, and other officials will highlight how investments such as climate-smart agriculture are bringing new revenue to farmers, increased economic development in rural towns and communities, and more opportunity throughout the country. Anyone who has seen Vilsack speak over the past few months has seen him use a whiteboard to point out that even though the farm income hit a record $183 billion last year, only about 11% of farmers received the bulk of that income. Vilsack has championed more diversified income opportunities through carbon credits, rural renewable energy, bio-based products such as sustainable aviation fuel, local meat processing and food production facilities, and more domestic fertilizer production. Vilsack has also used the whiteboard speech to counter the argument that the only way for producers to make income is to get bigger. Pumpkins are a well-known autumn staple. However, some claim that this vegetable could be the superfood of the future. In the West, pumpkins may be the main ingredient in a traditional holiday pie, but their true potential lies in their nutritional and medicinal benefits. Rich in various essential nutrients and relatively easy to grow, this hearty, drought-tolerant crop is underrated. Pumpkins contain antioxidants, which are said to help prevent various cancers. Nutrient-dense but with a low calorie count, this water-rich fruit is also a great source of vitamin A. The fruit is also rich in beta carotene, vitamin C, vitamin E, iron, and folate, all of which strengthen immune systems. A 2021 study from the University of Putra, Malaysia, called pumpkins a revolutionary age crop, adding it is a balanced food and more adapted to low soil and atmospheric circumstances and other major crops. Besides all this, it seems pumpkins are an ideal plant for water-secure regions due to their tolerance to drought. Given their ability to withstand less water and salinity, they are the preferred crop to be grown in the sandbars of Bangladesh. Researchers in Turkey are trying to develop novel varieties of pumpkins based on certain cultivars that will result in a more drought-tolerant crop. Pumpkins are not only found to be well-suited to growing in water-stressed regions, but also considered beneficial for the soil that they are being grown in. They have the ability to reduce erosion, to fix atmospheric nitrogen, reduce nitrogen leaching, and improve soil health. For the second quarter in a row, organic fresh produce in the U.S. grew slightly in year-over-year sales and volume in the third quarter of 2023, according to the Q3 2023 Organic Produce Performance Report issued by the Organic Produce Network and Category Partners. Overall, organic fresh produce dollar sales and volume increased by 2% and 1.9% respectively. For Q3 2023, compared to the same period last year, with the sales for the quarter topping $2.44 billion and volume movement at $733 million pounds. Conventional produce dollar sales and volumes showed similar year-over-year gains, with sales up 2.4% and a volume increase of 1.8%. In a period of continued inflationary pressure, price increases in each segment were considerably less compared to the last two years. Conventional produce average price per pound grew by 0.6% compared to the third quarter of 2022, while organic pricing per pound rose by a mere 0.1%. Overall, the average price per pound for the total produce department increased by only 1%, compared to the same period last year. In the third quarter, 15 of 20 organic fresh produce categories posted increases in dollar sales compared to the same period last year. The organic berry sector, which includes strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, and blackberries, led overall dollar sales with $461 million for the quarter, representing a year-over-year increase of almost 7%. Organic broccoli saw the largest sales jump, 
up 14% from the same period last year. The second largest dollar category packaged salads experienced a decline of 5.4% in sales in the third quarter of this year compared to the same period in 2022 with total sales of $362 million. Volume gains are seen in 12 of the top 20 categories, including double-digit growth for broccoli and watermelon. Organic Salary posted the largest decline in volume down 21%, followed by peaches down 16% and packaged salads down 6.4%. Geographically, every region saw year-over-year increases in dollar sales, with the South showing the largest gain of 4%. The West region was the only area to see a decrease in volume and an increase in price per pound. The Q3 2023 Organic Produce Performance Report covers food sales in the U.S., including all outlets for 13 weeks of 2023, compared to the same period last year. JCS Marketing is your number one way to connect with the ag industry. Through print magazines, digital media, podcasts, and live and virtual events, JCS Marketing has the reach to inform, educate, and influence growers in the Western United States. Everywhere you go, you see West Coast Nut Magazine on every one of my customers' tables. So that tells you everything. That's, that, it's there, so they're reading it. Our My Ag Life platform includes podcast interviews and digital articles for busy professionals on the go. Our live events, continuing education webinars, and virtual conferences help growers connect with leading researchers and industry leaders. Let JCS Marketing help you connect. That will wrap up today's show. You've been listening to the My Ag Life Daily News Report. I'm Lori Boyer. From all of us here at the JCS Marketing Team, thank you for listening. 